Section 16 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. The Theory of Progress in England. 1. The idea of progress could not help crossing the channel. France and England had been at war in the first year of the 18th century, they were at war in the last, and their conflict for supremacy was the leading feature of the international history of the whole century. But at no period was there more constant intellectual intimacy or more marked reciprocal influence between the two countries. It was a commonplace that Paris and London were the two great foci of civilization, and they never lost touch of each other in the intellectual sphere. Many of the principal works of literature that appeared in either country were promptly translated, and some of the French books, which the censorship rendered it dangerous to publish in Paris, were printed in London. It was not indeed to be expected that the theory should have the same kind of success, or exert the same kind of effect in England as in France. England had her revolution behind her, France had hers before her. England enjoyed what were then considered large political liberties, the envy of other lands. France groaned under the tyranny of worthless rulers. The English constitution satisfied the nation, and the serious abuses which would now appear to us intolerable were not sufficient to awaken a passionate desire for reforms. The general tendency of British thought was to see salvation in the stability of existing institutions, and to regard change with suspicion. Now passionate desire for reform was the animating force which propagated the idea of progress in France. And when this idea is translated from the atmosphere of combat, in which it was developed by French men of letters, into the calm climate of England, it appears like a cold reflection. Again, English thinkers were generally inclined to hold, with Locke, that the proper function of government is principally negative, to preserve order and defend life and property, not to aim directly at the improvement of society, but to secure the conditions in which men may pursue their own legitimate aims. Most of the French theorists believed in the possibility of molding society indefinitely by political action, and rested their hopes for the future not only on the achievements of science, but on the enlightened activity of governments. This difference of view tended to give to the doctrine of progress in France more practical significance than in England. But otherwise British soil was ready to receive the idea. There was the same optimistic temper among the comfortable classes in both countries. Shaftesbury, the deist, had struck this note at the beginning of the century by his sanguine theory, which was expressed in Pope's banal phrase, whatever is, is right, and was worked into a system by Hutcheson. This optimism penetrated into orthodox circles. Progress, far from appearing as a rival of providence, was discussed in the interests of Christianity by the Scotch theologian Turnbull. 2. The theory of the indefinite progress of civilization left Hume cold. There is little ground, he argued, to suppose that the world is eternal or incorruptible. It is probably mortal, and must therefore, with all things in it, have its infancy, youth, manhood, and old age. And man will share in these changes of state. We must then expect that the human species should, when the world is in the age of manhood, possess greater bodily and mental vigor, longer life, and a stronger inclination and power of generation. But it is impossible to determine when this stage is reached for the gradual revolutions are too slow to be discernible in the short period known to us by history and tradition. Physically, and in mental powers, men have been pretty much the same in all known ages. The sciences and arts have flourished now and have again decayed, but when they reached the highest perfection among one people, the neighboring peoples were perhaps wholly unacquainted with them. 
We are therefore uncertain whether at present man is advancing to his point of perfection or declining from it. The argument is somewhat surprising in an 18th century thinker like Hume, but it did not prevent him from recognizing the superiority of modern to ancient civilization. This superiority forms indeed the minor premise in the general argument by which he confuted the commonly received opinion as to the populousness of ancient nations. He insisted on the improvements in art and industry, on the greater liberty and security enjoyed by modern men. To one who considers coolly on the subject, he remarked, quote, it will appear that human nature in general really enjoys more liberty at present in the most arbitrary government of Europe than it ever did during the most flourishing period of ancient times. He discussed many of the problems of civilization, especially the conditions in which the arts and sciences flourish, and drew some general conclusions, but he was too skeptical to suppose that any general synthesis of history is possible, or that any considerable change for the better in the manners of mankind is likely to occur. The greatest work dealing with social problems that Britain produced in the 18th century was Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and his luminous exposition of the effects of the division of labor was the most considerable contribution made by British thinkers of the age to the study of human development. It is much more than a treatise on economic principles. It contains a history of the gradual economic progress of human society, and it suggests the expectation of an indefinite augmentation of wealth and well-being. Smith was entirely at one with the French economists on the value of opulence for the civilization and happiness of mankind. But it was indirectly, perhaps, that his work contributed most effectively to the doctrine of the progress of collective mankind. His teaching that the free commercial intercourse of all the peoples of the world, unfettered by government policies, was to the greatest advantage of each, presented an ideal of the economic solidarity of the race, which was one element in the ideal of progress and this principle soon began to affect practice. Pitt assimilated it when he was a young man, and it is one of the distinctions of his statesmanship that he endeavored to apply the doctrines of his master so far as the prevailing prejudices would allow him. 3. A few writers of less weight and fame than Hume or Smith expressly studied history in the light of progress. It would not help us in following the growth of the idea to analyze the works of Ferguson, Dunbar, or Priestley but I will quote one passage from Priestley, the most eminent of the three, and the most enthusiastic for the progress of man. As the division of labor, the chief principle of organized society, is carried further, he anticipates that, quote, nature, including both its materials and its laws, will be more at our command. Men will make their situation in this world abundantly more easy and comfortable. They will probably prolong their existence in it, and will grow daily more happy. Thus, whatever was the beginning of this world, the end will be glorious and paradisiacal beyond what our imaginations can now conceive. Extravagant as some people may suppose these views to be, I think I could show them to be fairly suggested by the true theory of human nature and to arise from the natural course of human affairs. Quote. The problem of dark ages, which an advocate of progress must explain, was waved away by Priestley in his Lectures on History with the observation that they helped the subsequent advance of knowledge by breaking the progress of authority. This is not much of a plea for such periods viewed as machinery in a providential plan. The great history of the Middle Ages, which in the words of its author describes the triumph of barbarism and religion, had been completed before Priestley's lectures appeared, and it is remarkable that he takes no account of it, though it might seem to be a work with which a theory of progress must come to terms. Yet the skeptical historian of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, who was more at home in French literature than any of his fellow countrymen, 
was not opposed to the theory of progress, and he even states it in a moderate form. Having given reasons for believing that civilized society will never again be threatened by such an eruption of barbarians as that which oppressed the arms and institutions of Rome, he allows us to, quote, acquiesce in the pleasing conclusion that every age of the world has increased, and still increases, the real wealth, the happiness, the knowledge, and perhaps the virtue of the human race. The discoveries of ancient and modern navigators, and the domestic history or tradition of the most enlightened nations, represent the human savage, naked both in mind and body, and destitute of laws, of arts, of ideas, and almost of language. From this abject condition, perhaps the primitive and universal state of man, he has gradually arisen to command the animals, to fertilize the earth, to traverse the ocean, and to measure the heavens. His progress in the improvement and exercise of his mental and corporeal faculties has been irregular and various, infinitely slow in the beginning, and increasing by degrees with redoubled velocity. Ages of laborious ascent have been followed by a moment of rapid downfall, and the several climates of the globe have felt the vicissitudes of light and darkness. Yet the experience of four thousand years should enlarge our hopes and diminish our apprehensions. We cannot determine to what height the human species may aspire in their advances towards perfection, but it may safely be presumed that no people, unless the face of nature is changed, will relapse into their original barbarism. Close quote. But Gibbon treats the whole subject as a speculation, and he treats it without reference to any of the general principles on which French thinkers had based their theory. He admits that his reasons for holding that civilization is secure against a barbarous cataclysm may be considered fallacious, and he also contemplates the eventuality that the fabric of sciences and arts, trade and manufacture, law and policy, might be decayed by time. If so, the growth of civilization would have to begin again, but not ab initio, for the more useful or at least more necessary arts, which do not require superior talents or national subordination for their exercise, and which war, commerce, and religious zeal have spread among the savages of the world, would certainly survive. These remarks are no more than obiter dicta, but they show how the doctrine of progress was influencing those who were temperamentally the least likely to subscribe to extravagant theories. 4. The outbreak of the French Revolution evoked a sympathetic movement among English progressive thinkers which occasioned the government no little alarm. The dissenting minister, Dr. Richard Price, whose Observations on Civil Liberty, 1776, defending the action of the American colonies, had enjoyed an immense success, preached the sermon which provoked Burke to write his reflections, and Priestley, no less enthusiastic in welcoming the revolution, replied to Burke. The government resorted to tyrannous measures. Young men who sympathized with the French movement and agitated for reforms at home were sent to Botany Bay. Paine was prosecuted for his Rights of Man, which directly preached revolution. But the most important speculative work of the time, William Godwin's Political Justice, escaped the censorship because it was not published at a popular price. Footnote. Godwin had helped to get Paine's book published in 1791, and he was intimate with the group of revolutionary spirits who were persecuted by the government. A good account of the episode will be found in Brailsford's Shelley, Godwin, and Their Circle. End of footnote. The enquiry concerning political justice, begun in 1791, appeared in 1793. The second edition, three years later, shows the influence of Condorcet's sketch, which had appeared in the meantime. Godwin says that his original idea was to produce a work on political science to supersede Montesquieu. The note of Montesquieu's political philosophy was respect for social institutions. 
Godwin's principle was that social institutions are entirely pernicious, that they perpetuate harmful prejudices, and are an almost insuperable obstacle to improvement. If he particularly denounced monarchical government, he regarded all government as evil, and held that social progress would consist not in the reformation of government, but in its abolition. While he recognized that man had progressed in the past, he considered history mainly a sequence of horrors, and he was incapable of a calm survey of the course of civilization. In English institutions he saw nothing that did not outrage the principles of justice and benevolence. The present state of humanity is about as bad as it could be. It is easy to see the deep influence which the teaching of Rousseau exercised on Godwin. Without accepting the theory of Arcadia, Godwin followed him in unsparing condemnation of existing conditions. Rousseau and Godwin are the two great champions in the eighteenth century of the toiling and suffering masses. But Godwin drew the logical conclusion from Rousseau's premises which Rousseau hesitated to draw himself. The French thinker, while he extolled the anarchical state of uncivilized society, and denounced government as one of the sources of its corruption, nevertheless sought the remedy in new social and political institutions. Godwin said boldly, government is the evil, government must go. Humanity can never be happy until all political authority and social institutions disappear. Now the peculiarity of Godwin's position as a doctrinaire of progress lies in the fact that he entertained the same pessimistic view of some important sides of civilization as Rousseau, and at the same time adopted the theories of Rousseau's opponents, especially Alvasius. His survey of human conditions seems to lead inevitably to pessimism. Then he turns round and proclaims the doctrine of perfectibility. The explanation of this argument was the psychological theory of Alvasius. He taught, as we saw, and Godwin developed the view in his own way, that the natures and characters of men are molded entirely by their environment, not physical, but intellectual and moral environment, and therefore can be indefinitely modified. A man is born into the world without innate tendencies. His conduct depends on his opinions. Alter men's opinions, and they will act differently. Make their opinions conformable to justice and benevolence, and you will have a just and benevolent society. Virtue, as Socrates taught, is simply a question of knowledge. The situation, therefore, is not hopeless, for it is not due to the radical nature of man. It is caused by ignorance and prejudice, by governments and institutions, by kings and priests. Transform the ideas of men, and society will be transformed. The French philosopher considered that a reformed system of educating children would be one of the most powerful means for promoting progress and bringing about the reign of reason, and Condorcet worked out a scheme of universal state education. This was entirely opposed to Godwin's principles. State schools would only be another instrument of power in the hands of a government, worse even than a state church. They would strengthen the poisonous influence of kings and statesmen, and establish instead of abolishing prejudices. He seems to have relied entirely on the private efforts of enlightened thinkers to effect a gradual conversion of public opinion. In his study of the perfectibility of man and the prospect of a future reign of general justice and benevolence, Godwin was even more visionary than Condorcet, as in his political views he was more radical than the revolutionists. Condorcet had at least sought to connect his picture of the future with a reasoned survey of the past and to find a chain of connection, but the perfectibility of Godwin hung in the air, supported only by an abstract theory of the nature of man. It can hardly be said that he contributed anything to the theoretical problem of civilization. His significance is that he proclaimed in England at an opportune moment, and in a more impressive and startling way than a sober apostle like Priestley, the creed of progress taught by French philosophers, though considerably modified by his own anarchical opinions.
5. Perfectibility, as expounded by Condorcet and Godwin, encountered a drastic criticism from Malthus, whose Essay on the Principle of Population appeared in its first form anonymously in 1798. Condorcet had foreseen an objection which might be raised as fatal to the realization of his future state. Will not the progress of industry and happiness cause a steady increase in population, and must not the time come when the number of the inhabitants of the globe will surpass their means of subsistence? Condorcet did not grapple with this question. He contented himself with saying that such a period must be very far away, and that by then the human race will have achieved improvements of which we can now scarcely form an idea. Similarly, Godwin, in his fancy picture of the future happiness of mankind, notices the difficulty and shirks it. Quote, Three-fourths of the habitable globe are now uncultivated. The parts already cultivated are capable of immeasurable improvement. Myriads of centuries of still increasing population may pass away and the earth still be found sufficient for the subsistence of its inhabitants. Close quote. Malthus argued that these writers labored under an illusion as to the actual relations between population and the means of subsistence. In present conditions, the numbers of the race are only kept from increasing far beyond the means of subsistence by vice, misery, and the fear of misery. Footnote. This observation had been made, as Hazlitt pointed out, before Malthus by Robert Wallace, see A Dissertation on the Numbers of Mankind, page 13, 1753. It was another book of Wallace that suggested the difficulty to Godwin. End of footnote. In the conditions imagined by Condorcet and Godwin, these checks are removed, and consequently the population would increase with great rapidity, doubling itself at least in twenty-five years. But the products of the earth increase only in an arithmetical progression, and in fifty years the food supply would be too small for the demand. Thus the oscillation between numbers and food supply would recur, and the happiness of the species would come to an end. Godwin and his adherents could reply that one of the checks on overpopulation is prudential restraint, which Malthus himself recognized, and that this would come more extensively into operation with that progress of enlightenment which their theory assumed. Footnote. This is urged by Hazlitt in his criticism of Malthus in The Spirit of the Age. End of footnote. But the criticisms of Malthus dealt a trenchant blow to the doctrine that human reason, acting through legislation and government, has a virtually indefinite power of modifying the condition of society. The difficulty, which he stated so vividly and definitely, was well calculated to discredit the doctrine, and to suggest that the development of society could be modified by the conscious efforts of man only within restricted limits. Footnote. The recent conclusions of Mr. Nibbs, statistician to the Commonwealth of Australia, in Volume One of his Appendix to the Census of the Commonwealth, have an interest in this connection. I quote from an article in the Times of August 5, 1918. Quote, an eminent geographer, the late Mr. E. G. Ravenstein, some years ago, when the population of the earth was estimated at 1,400 million, foretold that about the middle of this century population would have reached a limit beyond which increase would be disastrous. Mr. Nibbs is not so pessimistic and is much more precise. Though he defers the disastrous culmination, he has no doubt as to its inevitability. The limits of human expansion, he assures us, are much nearer than popular opinion imagines. The difficulty of food supplies will soon be most grave. The exhaustion of sources of energy necessary for any notable increase of population, or advance in the standards of living, or both combined, is perilously near. The present rate of increase in the world's population cannot continue for four centuries. Close quote. End of footnote. 6. The essay of Malthus afterwards became one of the sacred books of the utilitarian sect, 
and it is interesting to notice what Bentham himself thought of perfectibility. Referring to the optimistic views of Châtelieu and Priestley on progressive amelioration, he observed that these glorious expectations remind us of the golden age of poetry. For perfect happiness belongs to the imaginary region of philosophy, and must be classed with the universal elixir and the philosopher's stone. There will always be jealousies through the unequal gifts of nature and of fortune. Interests will never cease to clash and hatred to ensue. Painful labor, daily subjection, a condition nearly allied to indigence, will always be the lot of numbers. In art and poetry, the sources of novelty will probably be exhausted. But Bentham was far from being a pessimist. Though he believes that we shall never make this world the abode of happiness, he asserts that it may be made a most delightful garden compared with the savage forest in which men so long have wandered. 7. The Book of Malthus was welcomed at the moment by all those who had been thoroughly frightened by the French Revolution, and saw in the modern philosophy, as it was called, a serious danger to society. Footnote. Both Hazlitt and Shelley thought that Malthus was playing to the boxes, by sophisms calculated to lull the oppressors of mankind into a security of everlasting triumph. Bentham refers in his Book of Fallacies to the unpopularity of the views of Priestley, Godwin, and Condorcet. To aim at perfection has been pronounced to be utter folly or wickedness. End of footnote. Vice and misery and the inexorable laws of population were a godsend to rescue the state from the precipice of perfectibility. We can understand the alarm occasioned to believers in the established constitution of things, for Godwin's work, now virtually forgotten while Malthus is still appealed to as a discoverer in social science, produced an immense effect on impressionable minds at the time. All who prized liberty, sympathized with the downtrodden, and were capable of falling in love with social ideals, hailed Godwin as an evangelist. No one, said a contemporary, quote, was more talked of, more looked up to, more sought after, and wherever liberty, truth, justice was the theme, his name was not far off. Quote. Young graduates left the universities to throw themselves at the feet of the new Gamaliel. Students of law and medicine neglected their professional studies to dream of the renovation of society and the march of mind. Godwin carried with him all the most sanguine and fearless understandings of the time. The most famous of his disciples were the poets Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, and afterwards Shelley. Wordsworth had been an ardent sympathizer with the French Revolution. In its early days he had visited Paris, quote, an emporium then of golden expectations and receiving freights every day from a new world of hope, close quote. He became a Godwinian in 1795 when the terror had destroyed his faith in revolutionary France. Southey, who had come under the influence of Rousseau, was initiated by Coleridge into Godwin's theories, and in their utopian enthusiasm they formed the design of founding a Pantisocratic settlement in America to show how happiness could be realized in a social environment in which duty and interest coincide and consequently all are virtuous. The plan anticipated the experiments of Owen and Cabet, but the Pantisocrats did not experience the disappointments of the socialists, for it was never carried out. Coleridge and Southey, as well as Wordsworth, soon abandoned their Godwinian doctrines. Footnote. In letters of 1797 and 1798, Coleridge repudiated the French doctrines and Godwin's philosophy. End of footnote. They had, to use a phrase of Hazlitt, lost their way in utopia, and they gave up the abstract and mechanical view of society which the French philosophy of the 18th century taught, for an organic conception in which historic sentiment and the wisdom of our ancestors had their due place. 
Wordsworth could presently look back and criticize his Godwinian phase as that of, quote, a proud and most presumptuous confidence in the transcendent wisdom of the age and its discernment, close quote. He and Southey became conservative pillars of the state, yet Southey, reactionary as he was in politics, never ceased to believe in social progress. Footnote. See his colloquies, and Shelley, writing in 1811, says that Southey, quote, looks forward to a state when all shall be perfected and matter become subjected to the omnipotence of mind. Close quote. End of footnote. Amelioration was indeed to be effected by slow and cautious reforms, with the aid of the church, but the intellectual aberrations of his youth had left an abiding impression. While these poets were sitting at Godwin's feet, Shelley was still a child. But he came across political justice at Eton. In his later life he reread it almost every year, and when he married Godwin's daughter he was more Godwinian than Godwin himself. Hazlitt, writing in 1814, says that Godwin's reputation had sunk below the horizon, but Shelley never ceased to believe in his theory, though he came to see that the regeneration of man would be a much slower process than he had at first imagined. In the immature poem Queen Mab, the philosophy of Godwin was behind his description of the future, and it was behind the longer and more ambitious poems of his maturer years. The City of Gold, of the Revolt of Islam, is Godwin's future society, and he describes that poem as, quote, an experiment on the temper of the public mind as to how far a thirst for a happier condition of moral and political society survives, among the enlightened and refined, the tempests which have shaken the age in which we live. Close quote. As to Prometheus Unbound, his biographer observes, quote, All the glittering fallacies of political justice, now sufficiently tarnished, together with all its encouraging and stimulating truths, may be found in the caput mortuum left when the critic has reduced the poetry of the Prometheus to a series of doctrinaire statements. The same dream inspired the final chorus of Hellas. Shelley was the poet of perfectibility. 8. The attraction of perfectibility reached beyond the ranks of men of letters, and in Robert Owen, the benevolent mill-owner of Lanark, it had an apostle who based upon it a very different theory from that of political justice, and became one of the founders of modern socialism. The success of the idea of progress has been promoted by its association with socialism. Footnote. The word was independently invented in England and France. An article in the Poor Man's Guardian, a periodical edited by H. Hetherington, afterwards by Brontero O'Brien, August 24, 1833, is signed a socialist. And in 1834, socialism is opposed to individualism by P. Leroux in an article in the Revue Encyclopédique. The word is used in the New Moral World, and from 1836 was applied to the Owenites. End of footnote. The first phase of socialism, what has been called its sentimental phase, was originated by Saint-Simon in France and Owen in England at about the same time. Marx was to bring it down from the clouds and make it a force in practical politics. But both in its earlier and in its later forms, the economical doctrines rest upon a theory of society depending on the assumption, however disguised, that social institutions have been solely responsible for the vice and misery which exist, and that institutions and laws can be so changed as to abolish misery and vice. That is pure eighteenth-century doctrine, and it passed from the revolutionary doctrinaires of that period to the constructive socialists of the nineteenth century. Owen learned it, probably from Godwin, and he did not disguise it. His numerous works enforce it ad nauseum. 
He began the propagation of his gospel by his new view of society or essays on the formation of the human character preparatory to the development of a plan for gradually ameliorating the condition of mankind, which he dedicated to the prince regent. Here he lays down that, quote, any general character, from the best to the worst, may be given to any community, even to the world at large, by the application of proper means, which means are to a great extent at the command and under the control of those who have influence in the affairs of men. Close quote. The string on which he continually harps is that it is the cardinal error in government to suppose that men are responsible for their vices and virtues, and therefore for their actions and characters. These result from education and institutions, and can be transformed automatically by transforming those agencies. Owen founded several short-lived journals to diffuse his theories. The first number of the New Moral World, 1834-36, proclaimed the approach of an ideal society in which there will be no ignorance, no poverty, and no charity, a system which will ensure the happiness of the human race throughout all future ages to replace one which, so long as it shall be maintained, must produce misery to all. Footnote. This was not a journal, but a series of pamphlets which appeared in 1836 to 1844. Other publications of Owen were Outline of the Rational System of Society, 6th edition, Leeds, 1840, The Revolution in the Mind and Practice of the Human Race, or the Coming Change from Irrationality to Rationality, 1849, The Future of the Human Race, or A Great, Glorious, and Peaceful Revolution, Near at Hand, to be effected through the agency of departed spirits of good and superior men and women, 1853, The New Existence of Man Upon Earth, Parts 1 through 8, 1854-55. End of footnote. His own experimental attempt to found such a society on a miniature scale in America proved a ludicrous failure. It is to be observed that in these socialist theories, the conception of progress as indefinite tends to vanish or to lose its significance. If the millennium can be brought about at a stroke by a certain arrangement of society, the goal of development is achieved. We shall have reached the term, and shall have only to live in and enjoy the ideal state, a menagerie of happy men. There will be room for further, perhaps indefinite, advance in knowledge, but civilization in its social character becomes stable and rigid. Once man's needs are perfectly satisfied in a harmonious environment, there is no stimulus to cause further changes, and the dynamic character of history disappears. Theories of progress are thus differentiating into two distinct types, corresponding to two radically opposed political theories and appealing to two antagonistic temperaments. The one type is that of constructive idealists and socialists, who can name all the streets and towers of the city of gold, which they imagine as situated just round a promontory. The development of man is a closed system. Its term is known and is within reach. The other type is that of those who, surveying the gradual ascent of man, believe that by the same interplay of forces which have conducted him so far, and by a further development of the liberty which he has fought to win, he will move slowly towards conditions of increasing harmony and happiness. Here the development is indefinite, its term is unknown, and lies in the remote future. Individual liberty is the motive force, and the corresponding political theory is liberalism whereas the first doctrine naturally leads to a symmetrical system in which the authority of the state is preponderant and the individual has little more value than a cog in a well-oiled wheel. His place is assigned. It is not his right to go his own way. Of this type, the principal example that is not socialistic is, as we shall see, the philosophy of Comte. End of section 16